all the songs today, including His Eyes on the Sparrow, which is, uh, I just, I love watching how things fit together. But it all goes with what we're talking about this morning as we're back in Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 2. Um, and the kind of the, the big idea for all these sermons is how Jesus is greater than blank, right? That Jesus, you know, we spent a whole year walking through Exodus looking at what God was trying to do with his people. But then something changed when Jesus came, right? That, that now we're not talking about some, you know, conceptual design or maybe we can make this happen. No, now we have Jesus. Now this stuff is possible. So last week when we were in Hebrews 1, we saw how Jesus was greater than the angels, I told you guys, talking about angels is not, uh, I don't have like a sermon in my back pocket about angels, so that was a fun one for me. But why the author of Hebrews was talking about how it's, it's better for us to be a child of God than to be a servant of God. And I don't remember if I, if I connected them last week. Certainly as a child, you would serve your parent, okay? I'm not saying we don't serve at all. But it is better to have... Not just the mindset, but the place of being a child of God as opposed to being a servant of God. And the, the author of Hebrews, writing to a, you know, a background of people who are primarily Jewish, they're struggling with persecution, they're feeling this tension of we can't do things like we used to, we can't serve like we're used to, saying, no, 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 no. You, you have Jesus. This is better. This is, this is far greater and we saw how when, hey, when we live as children of God more than servants of God, we start to live for God out of the motivation of his spirit, right? Not out of obligation. We start to live with the heart of God, not just, you know, what we think God would want in things. And we start to live more relationally, right? Life becomes less about tasks completing and more about what relationships are we forming and who are we doing things, like, who are we doing things with, so today we're going to move into Hebrews 2. We're going to kind of see some of the same refrains from chapter 1 popping up, but we're going to see a big theme that came up over and over and over again in the book of Exodus just come right back to the forefront. You guys have heard me talk about this, um, this narrative of power, production, and self, right? Probably at some point over the past year you heard that in Exodus, God kind of shows up and tells his people, look, when your focus is on power, right, like I need earthly power in order to make things happen. When your focus is on production, that life is all about what I can do and, you know, what I can't do. Or when my focus is on self, right, who I am, very inward looking, just taking care of me. God says, you missed my heart. You missed my heart. In Exodus, it showed God trying to teach his people different ways as if we're going to be founded as the people of God we have to leave that mindset behind. And right here in Hebrews 2, we see the author says, yeah, the way we leave this behind is through Jesus. So we're going to see today God call his people to cling to who Jesus is, to remind ourselves that his reconciliation work is greater than godly power, production, and self. So the call to action from chapter 1 and chapter 2 is now cling to who Jesus is. And by doing that, we're going to remind ourselves, okay, God, what you are doing and making all things right with you is greater than pursuing power, production, or self, even if it is in the name of God. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 1. The author writes, 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he who for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God, we are grateful for just a passage dip and reach deep, deep in who you are. God, so rich in explaining who your son is to us. Lord, may we not blow by it this morning, but just be able to reflect, man, this is who Christ is. And if this is true, Father, who your son is, that, that changes who I am as well. That tells me who I am. That tells me my purpose. Father, I pray that we would dwell in your word with you for a little while this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So, the author, kind of like last week, He's speaking to the same audience, right? This, this audience that used to be of a Jewish background. And they're, they're kind of on the edge of their seats from chapter 1 saying, Okay, we got it. Jesus is greater than the angels. Now tell me what to do with this. And I love in verse 1, we've been seeing this all over Scripture, but here it is again. He says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Pay even more close attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Right, right off the bat, and we are getting the, the call to action. It doesn't feel like a call to action because when you think of doing something, you don't think of 
paying more close attention to what you've already heard. But this is where the author of Hebrews is going. He begins by addressing his people, look, cling to who Jesus is. If Jesus really is greater, right, if he really is better, cling to who he is. He says if we don't cling to him, verse 1, we end up drifting away from it. This call to pay close attention to is the Greek verb prosecco. It means to hold the mind toward. Um, I mean, if you could just imagine almost like putting blinders on a horse, right? You're going to fix your gaze on something, and you're not going to be able to see anything else. You're, you're going to have to physically turn your head. So it's like putting blinders on us, and then also... If you can imagine somebody putting their hand on your head and just holding your gaze forwards, right? We can't see anything. We can't look away. We're just watching what's in front of us. This, this is the picture when it says pay much closer attention. We are locked in. We are ready to go. This is what he says. This is what we do. And notice, I, I, I love this church. He says when we talk about drifting, when we talk about drifting from what we've heard, typically you and I today, when we think about drifting, we think about it in terms of morality. We think about it in terms of actions, right? That if I'm drifting from Jesus, it means my actions are going to be wrong. But the author tells us there's something more powerful at play, which is why the, the drifting is so dangerous. It's not just we're going to end up starting to do the right things. The author tells us it's a drift in identity. That if, if we forget who Jesus is, then we forget who we are. If you look at verse 2, he says, look, this message that has been given to you, this testimony is proven reliable. The Greek there meaning it's, it's steadfast. It's trustworthy. It's like a, a concrete slab that you would build a house on, right? It's, it's not going anywhere. It's, it's foundational. He says, if, if we forget this, and we forget the brokenness that we have because of sin, then how can we be saved? This is not talking about, I just need to be doing the right thing. He says, no, look, if, if you forget the testimony of who Jesus is, you forget the brokenness that exists because of sin, but you forget the testimony of who God is and how good this is for our lives. Verse 3 and 4 it says, look, God has made this testimony of who Jesus is clear over and over and over again, as many ways as he possibly can. Right, that he's told us it, you know, in like literally spoken it to us in signs and wonders and miracles and pouring out the Spirit. God's saying, look, in every possible way, I have tried to tell you that it's not just about I'm trying to get you to do the right thing if you forget who Jesus is. You don't even know who you are if you don't have Christ. He says, this is foundational to how I have made you. So, if it's such a foundational thing, then who is Jesus? And this is where the author goes over the entire rest of the chapter. He says, all right, buckle up. Here's who Jesus is. And he just lays out about 13 verses of some of the, the most deep like theology of who Jesus is in the entire New Testament. He starts in verses 5 through 9. And I love that as the author's throwing out all this theology, he's saying, this is who Jesus is. He pulls out all these quotes from the Old Testament. He says, look, this, Jesus is somebody you knew about. You knew he was coming. You knew who he was going to be about. He's just proven it to you. He quotes Psalm 8 uh, in verses 6 through 8. And he gives us this little commentary in verse 5 and verse 9. says, look, this, this prophecy is not about somebody. It's not about the angels. It's about Jesus. 
He says, Jesus is this one who has been made temporarily lower than the angels, yet Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, and God has put everything under his feet. says that he even might taste death for everyone so that he can bring God's grace to us. I, I love the, the, just the, the imagery that's, that's baked into the New Testament. You read, taste death, that's... You know, what does death taste like? It's, it's not so much a, a flavor there. The verb there simply means to, to experience, right? That, that they talked about experiencing things as if they're tasting like a really good dish. So Jesus tastes, experiences death on our behalf so that by the grace of God, he might taste it for us. And he says, in doing so, verses 10 through 18, he starts quoting Psalm 22. He starts quoting Isaiah chapter 6 to show how we are children of God, that we have that right made possible to us because Christ has tasted death. And then he also shows how because Christ suffered the effect of sin, then he can relate with us in every way, which, which to me is, I don't know, I, I mean, I've been reading this passage all week, church, and I still... I'm struggling to wrap my head around how, how powerful it is that, that when we talk about serving a God, we talk about faith in Christ. We're not talking about this, this deity who made us for a purpose and then just kind of sits back and watches things happen to us, right? As if he does not relate or as if he does not know what's going on in our hearts, what's going on in our minds. As if we, we pray to him because we're like, God, I'm not sure if you're paying attention or if you can hear me. but Because that, that is honestly how it feels at times. And yet we see here the author saying to a church who's struggling with persecution, look, that image of God is not who he is. In fact, he has walked through what you walked through. He has tasted what you tasted. In fact, he has suffered all the way to the point of death. And because of this, he is able to deliver you from the effect of sin. This is verse 14, 15, 16. Because Christ has received not just this taste of death, but because he's also received God's life, verse 10, we can also receive it too. Verse 11, verse 17. We forget this when we forget who Jesus is. So the author of Hebrews, as he's writing to a church that, look, you and I may not be facing the same type of persecution today that the early church was. In fact, it would be a little bit of a stretch for me to say, at least here in America, that we face the same type of persecution they were going through. But we do face hardship, and we do face struggle. And the reality that the author of Hebrews is speaking to has not changed for us, Right? We see who Jesus is. We see what he has done for us. And in that, we start to get a little, little picture of who we are. So the encouragement is the same today, church. The author says, pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He says, when you, when you face struggles, when you face hardship, the tendency, as pointed out in verse 1, to drift away from it. But not a drifting in that we just start doing the wrong things. A drifting, we forget who we are. We start to think, man, I, I must need this to make me right. I must need this to fix things. Or I have no clue what to do, so I'm just, just going to kind of shut down for a little bit. This is what we struggle with. And the author says, look, cling 
to Jesus, cling to Jesus. But there's a specific context, too, that he gives to this clinging to Jesus. And this is where that, that good old power production self narrative kind of comes back. He says, you have to cling to Jesus instead of falling for this other narrative. Okay, if we read back through the text, we start to realize, oh, he's, he's addressing this. And there's a reason that the author is addressing it. So first, where do we see godly power? kind of showing up. Why, why do we have to be reminded that the reconciliation work God did in Christ is greater than godly power, right? We see in verse 8, and when I was reading this, I thought that is such a picture for our world today, right? That Christ, it's been testified somewhere back up in verse 6, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? And he talks about Jesus, verse 7, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Here we go, verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So the author tells us that God has put Christ in control of everything. Praise God. I mean, that, that's wonderful encouragement. But then the very next sentence says this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Keeps it going. At present... We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Church, can you imagine that for this early church facing persecution from literally every front around them, their, their former culture, the, the Jews did not accept them. The Roman government that they were living under had no clue really what to do with them, but they were kind of the scapegoat that got blamed for things. They, they'd had no place in their world. So can you imagine if you put yourself in their shoes, someone shows up and tells you, yes, Jesus is in control. Jesus is over everything. And you look at your life and you say, I don't know about you, but everything looks like it's falling apart right now. I'm not kind of sure how you can get away with telling me that Jesus is in control. The author of Hebrews says, look, we get it. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's fine for us to admit that church. In fact, it's healthy for us to say, look, everything is under the control of Christ. And yet equally, we can see not everything is in subjection to him. There's a tension there. And in our hearts, it comes out as a power struggle. We know Christ should be on the throne. We don't see Christ necessarily sitting on the throne. So what do we do? The power struggle says, no, we, we have to get everything under the lordship and the power of Christ. But the, the author of Hebrews says, look, Christ is already there. Christ is already on the throne. What do we do? Verse 9, we see him for a, a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. There is a season where it might not look like he's in control, yet Christ is still crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. I love this, church. Even though Christ was humbled for our sake, humbled to the point of death, dying in our place, okay? Even with that, he did not lose the crown of glory and honor that God had set aside for him. There was no suffering. There was no, just the fact that Christ gave up his power on earth to taste death for our behalf, it did not mean that Christ somehow lost the crown of glory, the crown of honor. In fact, he said, there's something greater than holding on to my power on earth 
that I'm working toward. And what is that church? Our reconciliation. I love, I love how Christ says, look, I'll, I'll let it look like things aren't under my control for a little bit. That doesn't bother me. Christ says, in fact, if I give up my power here on earth, I'm going to be able to make a way for everyone to be made right with God. And Christ counted that as a far greater work than just holding on to his power. So the author of Hebrews writes to this church struggling with persecution, says, look, I know you feel this tension. I know you claim a victory in a Savior that died years ago, and people look at you like you are crazy. And he says, just the fact that Christ is no longer here, the fact that Christ suffered to death, does not mean he has lost control. You don't have to fight to take control. Christ already has it. Christ already has it. So where do we see godly production, right? Because we also see from the early church last week that they struggled with this kind of production mindset. What do we do? When things aren't quite right, when we face suffering, what do we do? And that's why the Jewish law appealed so much. Last week, chapter 1 was saying, don't go back. You guys just came from that. You saw Jesus say that he was better than this law. Don't go back to the law. But he says, look, I know that you're going to struggle with this. So we get the, the recognition right off the bat. Verse 1, pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. God's not calling his people to be doing more, to produce something different to get out of suffering. He says, continue, persevere, remind yourself in what you've already received in Christ. We see the picture again in verse 17. It says, therefore he, talking about Christ, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Right? So what was Christ's role to do? It wasn't a production role. It was actually a priestly role. You think back to the Old Testament in Exodus, right? We, we went through chapters on chapters of who were the priests and what did they do and what were the sacrifices they offered and what, what were the funky clothes they wore. All of that was a picture of one who was going to remind the people of who God was and was going to stand in their place, right? The big, the $10 word, intercede. Right? Somebody, Christ was not called to just produce in order to make something that was going to get the church out of suffering. Christ came to stand in the place and say, God, I know you are rightfully mad at your creation because you made them to bear your image and they're not right with you. But God, take me in their place. And then he turns around, he looks at us and says, look, you were made in the image of a holy and a mighty and a righteous God. You might not even know him yet. Come meet him because you need to be made right with him. This is the life that Christ took up. He says he had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, which almost makes it sound like that might be our calling as well. If Christ is being made like us in every way so that he can do this well, well then if we were made the same way, maybe this is what we're called to. And indeed, this is kind of what Peter gets at when he says, look, you've been made, you the church, you the body of Christ, you the followers of Jesus, you've been made a, what, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, 
Again in verse 15, it says, Look, Christ came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I don't know if you remembered, but when we were going through Egypt or going through Exodus, when God's people were still in Egypt, so this would have been like this time last year. So I'll give you a pass if you forget this. But we talked about how in the, the production mindset, slavery was kind of the extreme version of that. That says we're going to so value people based off of what they can produce, what they can do for me, that I'm going to establish myself over someone so that they're, all they do in life is just produce for me. And Christ says, look, I have, I have come to break you out of that, to deliver you out of that. That is not who you are. That is not how you live. That's not how you relate to one another. That is what happened when you were in sin. But Christ has come to show us this reconciliation work is far greater than just production. So then also in chapter 2, where do we see self? I mean, just look at who Jesus, who is Jesus thinking about as he is going through all of this, right? We know that when we face hardship and we face struggles, our focus tends to turn inward. Uh, Abigail and I have a word for, for this in our house. We call it spiraling, right? That when you, you're struggling with something, you can't figure it out, you don't really know what to do, so you give it even more focus and attention, so you just get even more frustrated that you don't know what to do, and you just spiral because your focus turns in. And yet very clearly, this is not where Jesus' focus is. In fact, we're again told right in verse 1, focus on Christ. Verses 10 through 13, clearly Christ is not just taking on God's reconciliation work for himself. Right? There's no attitude of, I guess I'm going to have to come in and save the day because these people have no clue who this God is. Right, God? I mean, you sure you really want to help these people? That's not the attitude that Christ had. You see, in fact, he, he loved, he gave himself up for the people even to the point of death so that we would be able to be made right with God, verses 14 through 16. And then again in 17 and 18, in being made like us, Christ was able to reconcile us. So when we, when we struggle, when we wrestle, we want to turn inward. That's not where Jesus goes. So it's, it's a picture here in Hebrews 2. Look, the, the church that was coming out of a Jewish background would have known this narrative well. If they knew, you know, Kings and Chronicles, if they knew the prophets, they would have known that in the history of Israel, which kind of is a good commentary on the history of humanity, that's where we struggle, church. We struggle with needing power. We struggle with needing production. We struggle with needing self in order to think about how I can live. Sometimes we put God's name on it and say, well, I need this to be able to live for God. So as we're being told, cling to Jesus, cling to Jesus. It's, it's not just because Jesus is greater than everything. It's in particular here in Hebrews 2 because Jesus is greater than this mindset that this author knows we tend to go to, especially when things are hard. And church, I think the implications of this, man, are huge. Because I was thinking this week about, okay, where do I struggle? Like, where, where does my heart 
have a hard time with different things in life? Like, what, what freaks me out? What makes me get worried? Most of it comes from power production or self, right? When we feel powerless, we feel like we're not able to escape danger. We're not able to change circumstances. We're, we're not sure what we can do if, if there's someone that's in some position of authority, you know, whether it be a, a family member or a boss or something, that when we feel powerless, we get anxious, we get worried, we get depressed, especially when that power is not, is not a good thing towards us, right? Sometimes we get anxious or we get worried or we almost kind of just get depressed and shut down because we don't know what to do, right? It's a production mindset. We either feel like there's nothing we can do, so we try to run away, the, the flight mentality, or we're anxious because we have to do something, but we have no clue what the right thing is to do, right? The, the fight mentality. Neither, neither of those bring us peace. They just spin us up even more. And probably, I mean, most, most dangerous, we get to the point where we're, we're anxious and we're afraid because we just let our circumstances tell us who we are. And we start to actually let ourselves get redefined by what, whatever we're going through. So church, it's, it is, we need this. We need to be reminded, not just a, a blanket, Jesus is greater, but in particular, like Jesus is, is greater than our power, greater than our production, greater than ourself. There's, there's a season in my life that I can remember where, um, where I was really struggling with this. And it was kind of some combination of all three of them together. I didn't feel like I had enough authority to make change with where, what was going on. Um, and even if I did, I wasn't sure what to do. Right? It was a very unfamiliar situation. I wasn't sure if there was a right thing or if there, you know, what the wrong things were. So my production was kind of weird. And it ended up just really affecting myself where I was like, you know, I'm... Even if I did know the right thing to do, even if I did have the power to do it, I don't even think I'm really like good enough to be doing this anymore. And I can remember every day I would come home just frustrated, anxious, just kind of this combination of I, I'm not good enough, I can't do this, I have no clue like what my purpose is at this point. I would just curl up on the couch. Uh, we had this wonderful old couch that the, the third cushion on the right made an L. And it was just long enough that I'm not a, a short person, but I could curl up very comfortably on the couch. And, and Charlie, it would, it would just unnerve her. Because she would come in and be like, okay, what's, what's wrong with Daddy? You know, and she would try to tell me, like, it, it's okay, Daddy. Like, it's really wigging me out that you're, you're the, this disturbed right now, but it's okay, Daddy. And I'd be like, Charlie, you know, you're two, you're one. You don't know what you're talking about. Like I, and I would push her away. And I can remember watching for the rest of the evening how unnerved and on edge she would be. She would just be waiting for something to go wrong. And then when she would snap, I would snap because I was also unnerved and on edge and waiting for something to go wrong. Church, when we, when we forget who Jesus is, and we start going after this power production self. Either we start doing things in it or we just start to shut down because we don't know what to do with it. This is so important because it reflects to the rest of the world. Right? Then if I start trying to tell Charlie about who Jesus is, she says, 
You're telling me that Jesus is pretty great, but you come home curled up on the couch every day pushing me away. Like it just it doesn't look right. The world can very easily say, well, you're you're preaching some name in some you know gospel of in Jesus, but but you just look frustrated, you just look anxious, you don't look any different from the rest of us. And it's what the early church was nearly in danger of. It's why the author of Hebrews is saying, look, you have to remember who Jesus is. You have to not just remember, you have to cling to who Jesus is because you're going to go through unhealthy relationships. right? You're going to feel lack of power where I can't get out of this, the lack of production to be free. You're going to say, I, I, I just, fine, if that's who that person tells me I am, that just must be who I am. It says you're going to go through seasons of work where you're going to feel powerless to change things. You're going you're gonna to struggle with, am I even producing enough for myself or my family to live off of? Should I just go do more because we need more? Or you're going to let how culture sees your job or your lack of a job as part of who you are that you would get defined by your vocation or your lack of one. He's, the author of Hebrews says, look, I know you're going to be going through yourself and watch people around you seasons where you're stuck in abuse or stuck in addiction, stuck in dependency because you feel powerless, you feel productionless. I just don't know how to change this. The author of Hebrews says, look, you are going to encounter the same suffering that the rest of the world does. He says, and if you forget who Christ is, you forget that he knew, not only can God redeem, not only can God deliver, but staying in that is greater than trying to do anything else. He says, the world's not going to see that. It just my own daughter missed that in me for the season that I, I wrestled with this. And that's, you know, hopefully we have many more years together and I can show her a different picture today than I did during that season. But church, if you and I were made to reflect the image of God and the reconciliation work that he's doing, it's not an accident that the author says, cling to who Jesus is so that you show the world that God's reconciliation work is just is greater than just sticking God's name on whatever we're trying to go after. So, a couple key reminders that we should keep in head as we go this week. Because our call to action here is, is verse 1. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Pay much closer attention to what we have heard. When we face anxiety, worry, or hardship, instead of just getting spun up, spiraling, as we would call it, what can we remind ourselves? First, I think a huge encouragement for many of you would be the encouragement from verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right? Receive the hope today, church, that if we are clinging in who Jesus is because we believe God's reconciliation work is, is greater, receive the hope that seeing brokenness, seeing the effect of sin on our world, it does not mean that God is not able to deliver. It does not mean that Christ has lost his crown of glory and honor. 
Do not let the lack of power that you feel right now tell you that God also has no power over your circumstances, over the situation that you are in. If we truly believe that God's reconciliation work is greater in our clinging to Jesus, we will not wrestle with this. Second encouragement. Remember, Christ has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Maybe some of you need today uh, this hope. God is not imposing on you some production standard of what you have to do in his name to somehow earn his grace or his, his forgiveness or his blessing or his love or that you have done something wrong to bring his discipline on you. Yes, the scripture is clear. God does discipline those whom he loves. But Christ has come to deliver us from having to make our own reconciliation possible. Some of, some of us, we just get so frustrated because we're like, man, if we just can't figure out the right thing to do here, then somehow that lessens the work that God is doing in our lives. Don't put a standard on you that God is not. And maybe you need to receive this encouragement. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is verse 18. Receive the hope that Christ has suffered just as you do. Right? And just as we saw that Christ's sufferings didn't mean that he somehow lost his crown, right? that your, your suffering does not define who you are. That just the fact that Jesus suffered, it didn't change who he was or change what he was able to do. Yourself is not tied to your situation, but to the one who is able to help you, who has been in your place. You are seen, you are heard, you are known in your suffering in Christ. And this is why we have a community fellowship here at New River. I mean, man, we, we want to be that fellowship that comes alongside of you and says, yeah, we also see you and also know you and are also walking, walking with you through this. And the last, the last little piece of this, again going back to verse 1, where it says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. What we have heard is the testimony of who Christ is. So if we are not in Christ, either we're not walking with him daily, or you know, if we don't, some of our church vernacular, we would say if we don't have a relationship with God, if, if we don't have faith in Jesus, if we have not been reconciled to God. Church, and the author of Hebrews is saying, then you will be missing out on this hope. And so there is an initial step. If we're going to pay much closer attention to what we have already heard and received, we have to hear it and receive it first. This is what Jesus points out to his disciples in John chapter 16 as he's, he's in his last moments with them. He says this in John 16, beginning in verse 25. He says, I've said these things, talking about who he was and what was going to take place. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. 
Now I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe, listen, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? So the, the crux of this is the disciples saying, okay, Jesus, we, we know who you are. We believe, we trust who you are. Jesus says, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you. He's been trying to get them to understand who he is and what he's done and to get them to believe it. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We have to be careful, church, at times when we're reading this letter. We are reading this written to a body completely of, of believers. So just as a pastor, I don't, I don't want to just make that assumption this morning, okay? That if we are going to cling to who Jesus is, we have to be doing this consistently. We also have to choose, commit to doing this as well. So just as we've been talking about all these things, we need to remind ourselves about who Jesus is that will help us in our anxiety and help us in our hardship. For some of you, this the first step may be saying, Jesus, I have never believed in who you are. But if this is who you are, then I trust that you will bring peace into my world, peace over my sin, peace over my brokenness. So maybe that's where we need to start this morning. We're going to do something a, a little different this morning. I think those of you who have known me know altar calls are not necessarily something that I have done. Um, but this morning, I'm gonna, I'll step down and just kind of go over to the corner while John and the team are doing the last song. And if you need prayer about either remembering any of these things or praying about, man, I need to actually commit and say, yes, Jesus, that is who you are, and I believe that. I'll just give you an opportunity to come step over and pray with me, okay? We'll do that. But let's close and pray together. We say, O Lord, help us to approach thee with the coming conception of thy nature, thy relations, and thy designs. You inhabit eternity, and my life is nothing before thee. You dwell in the highest heaven, and even that can't contain you. And I live in a house of clay. Thy power is almighty, and I am crushed before the moth. Thy understanding is infinite, and I know nothing as I ought to. Thou canst not behold evil, and I am evil. In my ignorance, in my weakness, in my fears, my depressions, may thy spirit help my infirmities with supplies of wisdom, of strength. And comfort. Let me faithfully study my character, be willing to bring it to light, observe myself in my trials, judge the reality and degree of my grace, and consider how I have been ensnared or overcome. Grant that I may never trust my heart, that I may never depend upon past experiences, that I may never magnify any present resolutions I may make, but may I be strong in the grace 
of Jesus, that I may know how to obtain relief from a guilty conscience without feeling somehow reconciled to my imperfections. Sustain me under my trials and improve them to me. Give me grace to rest in thee and assure me of your deliverance. May I always combine thy majesty with thy mercy and connect thy goodness with thy greatness. Only then shall my heart always rejoice in praises to thee. In your name we pray. Amen.